Welcome to Strategy International, a podcast produced by PodMTL that brings you insightful conversations with experts from all over the world on topics related to international relations and policy, security, defense, environment, and much more. And now, your host, George Santrizos. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Strategy International podcast. This is the podcast that's produced for Strategy International, a global think tank that brings together great minds from all over the world that get together, discuss, exchange, collaborate, and analyze issues of global interest, such as international politics and policy, uh, strategy, defense, economy, uh, the environment, and much, much more. We have an amazing guest uh, on today's episode. And before we get to the guest, let me invite you all to visit www.strategyinternational.org for every information on this think tank and for all activities. And of course, visit all the social media platforms that we're on. Um, our guest today is very special. Uh, I'm excited to talk to him. Um, it's Dr. Kostadinos Tsanis. He is a global industry specialist with the International Finance Corporation with a focus on digital transformation and fintech and an adjunct lecturer in digital finance at the University of Halt Business School. Uh, he is a seasoned financial technology and digital transformation executive with nearly 20 years hands-on experience across different continents and industries, talking about fintech, uh, banking, energy, oil, gas, and utilities, consulting, high-tech, academic, and the military. He is a recognized subject matter expert with uh, with work published in books, conferences, and both industry and mainstream publications. And he's received multiple industry awards, as you may understand. We're not just talking with anyone. Thank you so much, Kostas, uh, for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, George, for this great introduction and I'm super excited to be here in the podcast and to be able to share my knowledge um, on the and the importance of digital finance and to be able uh, you know to help create awareness on important topics uh, in the public. The, the pleasure is ours and the reason why I'm excited to have you on uh, on the on the program uh, is a little bit selfish because I myself, have very little knowledge of the industry that you are an expert in. Uh, of course, my background being in politics and, and everyone that follows, you know, Strategy International primarily is interested in general about, you know, world politics. And we know that despite everything that that's going on, there is a pretty important portion of governance and policy that has to do with um, financial and monetary policy, and this is something that you are uh, you have hands-on experience in, um, and, and obviously it's something that I don't have much knowledge about. And uh, you'll be able to to open up a lot of these doors for us. So I'm really really excited um, to talk to you and to have this conversation. So again, thank you for that. Uh, I want to jump right in because I, I was doing a little bit of research, and um, uh, you obviously, I mean, you know, the, the 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 introduction we made is 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 obviously very brief. There's so many layers to the experience that you have, but in that research that I that that I did, I I saw that you have been involved um, in uh, in launching digital banks across the world, especially in Africa, and that's something interesting. Uh, obviously, given the fact that uh, as we know, politically and socially and even economically, Africa isn't leading the charge, right? I mean, they're 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 quite behind. Uh, uh, 
And uh, the fact that you were there um, opening up these uh, these doors for, uh, uh, for, for, for African countries in an industry that is advancing very rapidly, uh, I found that very interesting. Uh, give us all, a, you know, kind of like an elevator pitch on, you know, how you ended up here uh, in this industry, in this field, and how, you know, you were led to Africa to, to, to run this exceptional um, initiative. Thanks, George. Um, so as you told, indeed, um, I I have, you know, Greece went, Greece, which is our home country, went under a financial crisis for a few years, which um, essentially after I finished my PhD in 2009, it was exactly when the financial crisis started. Um, it was very difficult to go back home. The conditions were not very good. And indeed, you know, even now, 14 years later, we are still in the path of recovery. So essentially, um, you know, the my ambitions, uh, but also the need to, 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 to do things, to make some more income for my family, things like that. It made me to stay out of Greece upon the completion of the PhD. Uh, I started from the UK where I worked as an energy analyst for a few years. Then I moved to the tech, to the financial technology and information sector, working for Bloomberg. We all know Bloomberg is the biggest, uh, one of the biggest media companies. They also have some financial trading systems. And with Bloomberg, I moved to Dubai, where from Dubai, I was covering all African markets and Middle East with Bloomberg. Uh, you can imagine a very interesting lifestyle. I was for three years covering all Africa. I was traveling every week. Uh, so many experiences, you know, from, for example, from being in Kenya and getting security alerts that four lions have escaped the zoo. So, you know, I need to be alerted and safe and we cannot walk on the street to, of course, multiple challenges across different banks, uh, you know, moving with security always in Nigeria, moving with security and armed guards in Uganda, in Egypt as well, and some other countries. So lots of exciting experiences. So ultimately, you know, I gave you a, a small uh, up to now, I have just told you how I had my corporate lifestyle and how I started working on digitalizing banks. Ultimately, after Bloomberg, I moved to Thomson Reuters, which is another Canadian company you might be well familiar with, um, which they also have their uh, their financial and uh, arm as well. I was doing the same role, focusing on Asia and so on. But what happened is one day, one of my African clients with Bloomberg, they called me and they told me, hey, Constantinos, we like your profile a lot. You are also Greek. You're familiar to, you know, being, you are not, you, you don't have the, the you know, you, you're for a more flexible, easygoing culture. We like you and you, we want you to come and build a digital bank for us. So that's how I moved to Nigeria, where I built the first digital bank of Africa. And uh, so that's my life story up to building the digital bank in the first digital bank in Africa. This digital bank became a case study in Harvard. It get multiple awards, uh, lots of experiences, including a lot of geopolitical experiences, which I'll talk about later. And ultimately, during COVID, uh, things were very difficult. Uh, living in some of these countries was really difficult. I can tell you later on some very tough experiences. Um, and then the World Bank and the IFC group, uh, the World Bank group, part of which is the IFC, they found someone um, Western educated, uh, ambitious and hardworking to help them develop digital banks around the world. That's how I ended up 
being in the Washington DC and for the World Bank group in the IFC. So I hope I didn't talk too much. No, no, uh, this this is this is the whole um uh, objective of this podcast, right? Is to engage in conversation and to meet uh, interesting individuals that have specifically this profile, uh, the, uh, this global profile uh that can uh, interest our viewers and our listeners. Um I'm still very much intrigued about Africa because, you know, digital banking and digital finance, of course, in Western countries, it's something that we're much more accustomed to. And we're going to get into the details for those who don't understand uh, what that means. But for Africa, explain to us a little bit how, you know, the motivation behind this sort of development. And obviously, I don't think unless I'm wrong, uh, that it is a um, uh, a mainstream kind of uh, approach uh, across Africa. I don't think uh, generally most of the countries in Africa are moving in that direction. Uh, so definitely, there's a huge market there. But is that a um, uh, is that a tendency that will uh, continue, or do you think that aside from a few develop de- developing countries, it's pretty much going to stagnate? Great question. So you are spot on to say that we grew up in countries, uh, Canada, US, Europe, where the banking system is developed over the years. So the people, they have bank accounts, the people have cards, they have credit history, and they can do transactions through their phone at the end of the day. Um, However, you rightly spotted that it's not the same in uh, developing countries and especially in Africa. Just to give you a number, in Nigeria, when I went there, out of 200 million population in 2015, only um, 60 million had bank accounts. So we speak about our Western countries 100 years before, more or less, Mm, right? Um, But the main difference is that so many people are financially excluded, but all of them, they have smartphones or analog phones, a smaller number of them. So this, you know, makes digital banking a unique proposition. You can imagine situations now where in African villages, they have no road, they have no electricity, right? And to get paid to to send cash, sometimes even Nigerian expats from Canada or from the US or from UK or from anywhere really, uh, they want to send cash to their families because they're out to, to... produce money for the family. You know how the cash takes to arrive? Like it it, it needs to physically be sent and arrive to a remote village where there is no road and no electricity. This is super hard. However, we are living a a revolution now because all the people from the village, they have low cost smartphones and in the worst case, analog phones. But um, this capability, it's empowering them to really enter the financial system and start performing transactions and so on, right? So in a summary, uh, the ultimate aspect, uh, of course, you know, we speak about professional success, we speak about financial returns and things like that. But ultimately, we speak about changing the lives of people. We speak about making the people who need this money, who want to use this money, to have money faster, easier, more efficient, uh, and to avoid a lot of other issues on down the way, like from FX rates, which come very high when money comes from abroad, from the money you have to physically travel from major cities to small cities and 
This can involve stealing the money, losing the money, um, even having fake banknotes in some cases, mm. uh, or be giving rates to intermediaries so the money can arrive to the people. So we speak about a big social impact. And, you know, just to cre- tell you a simple example, from the digital bank I created in Nigeria, within one year of operations, we onboarded 5 million people. 5 million people, speaking about our home country, is all the people who are in the banking system of Greece. And all of that happened in only one year in Nigeria. So you can, and still we have around uh, 90 million financially excluded. So I just highlight you the impact of what I did. And I want to tell you that this is changing super fast now. There are more and more, going back to your questions on your trend. It is an absolute trend. Um, and the impact is having is very big. Right now in Nigeria, there are probably 40 or 45 digital banks that all of them are trying to capture this huge market. And the same in other major countries, from Brazil with Nubank, from uh, Mexico and Argentina with Mercado Libre, from all the Central Asian countries like Uzbekistan and, and all these countries, to Egypt, to, to China, even China, they have... We bank. We bank. They have onboarded 800 million people. This is like all the banks of all, all our, you know, all the countries of the West together. You know, so it is a it is a very increasing trend. And to go back to your to draw a parallel to your question, this is also what is making the old banks cut down their fees. Competition is making the banks cut down their fees and try to offer better customer experience. Right. So that's the big picture. And I have so much more information to share after your next question. I want to stick on this subject, especially in Africa, uh, because and again, you're talking and as you're talking, I keep comparing the reality that we're living with, right, where these things have existed uh, for, for decades. And even though it may be seen as a basic first step for these uh, communities and these societies in Africa, they're still very much. You know, the, the the issue of the mentality and, and the education. And I'm thinking, how trustworthy do they think this is where, you know, 50, 60 years ago, when I think of my parents, they would much rather have their money stacked somewhere in the house and it's safer in my pocket, under the bed, in the fridge, wherever they would hide it. They knew that it was there. It was tangible. Uh, and uh, I, I, I mean, I remember here in Canada when everything went digital or mostly digital, there were some, especially in these cultures that, that have this kind of older mindset, this fear of, is my money there? Because it's not tangible. It's all, it's a number in a book. And is it really going to be there? Can I trust this bank? Uh, what if something happens? Will I lose everything? How are people uh, reacting to this sort of mentality and this sort of uh, practice in Africa? So you are very right to mention this example. and It makes me laugh. Because you told 50 or 60 years, and I will tell you that in our home country in Greece, it's even now in some villages. Um, Or, uh, you know, 15 years ago, it was the majority of uh, Italy, Greece, Spain. Um, So you're very right. There is a behavioral change uh, that is needed. You know, people are used to touch the money, to see it as a paper money, right? Um, And uh, and this is actually a, a perception, a feeling. You cannot change it. So, yes, the people don't trust it at all at the beginning. They are like, you know, how can I trust a phone? How can I trust? This is a phone. This is money. This is separate the one from the other. It's totally different. 
However, what happens is it's difficult to persuade them. They don't believe it. They don't trust it, especially also with a lot of bank runs, especially also, you know, different issues. Um, but after they see the benefits they can get by getting a small amount on a digital wallet and by seeing that the money is there, the transaction is easier, uh, the money comes faster, there's no need for EP, for receipt, no need for paperwork, no need for dirty cash uh, sometimes. Um, you know, they start trusting it slowly. So it's exactly as you told the perception, it's something totally new to them. They don't even know it. You know, they don't have the exposure because in our countries, we do have exposure, even if we don't use so much digital apps. We know digital money, we have heard it, we move around, we see digital payment, we see Apple Pay. It's not exactly the same at all. There they have no examples. It's and they don't even have, don't even have television in some cases right. to learn about it. So only after they realize the value that they can do their job easier and faster, that their son can send them money easier from abroad, that they, they, they don't have to give intermediary fees for FX conversions and for money transfers. All of that makes it much, it persuades them. So there's a behavioral change that's happening at the end. Uh, it is a bit tough. If you ask me, it takes three to six months uh, some cases. But, you know, the apps are developed accordingly, right? So in the apps, you you can give some people with, of the similar present, uh, presentation that will speak about their experience, uh, highlight their benefits. So you build trust on these apps. You train the users and then they're persuaded. So that's how the behavioral change happens. I want to ask you, especially since you have this experience of initiating these uh, these efforts in countries that maybe they wouldn't even have imagined this happening a couple of years ago. Uh, I, I want to just skip over a little bit into the political realm, because as this field uh, and as this industry continues to grow and it continues to grow exponentially, uh, where now we don't even need cards. Right. I mean, we scan our phone. I, I mean, it's it's advancing at such a rapid pace, at least here in the West. You know, what are the reasons or the key reasons why, you know, investments in these fields are, are crucial for economic development or financial inclusion? So here, where is the geopolitical aspect comes? And, uh, you know, um, Africa has been a battlefield for that. Because what happens is, I'll put it simply, you have three types of companies in Africa. You have those which are well-funded and operated from Western companies, US, UK, um, Germany, and so on, Canada as well. Um, then you have a, a lot of companies which have received funding from China and, you know, let's say another, uh, also Russia as well, some cases. Uh, and then you have the native companies which are owned from native people which are increasing, by the way. So um, uh, can you just remind me your question? Yeah. You know, the, the, the reasons why these investments in these fields are, are crucial for the economic development or okay. you know, the, the financial inclusion of, okay. uh, of these individuals. Okay. Uh, thanks. Thanks for uh, repeating it. Uh, so look, um, it is simple. Financial inclusion, you know, makes people to give their data, to build credit history. So they have the benefit of transacting easier, of doing, getting money easier, of sending money easier, and all of this. They don't have to carry cash. They can have all their transactions, the balances in a mobile phone app. Of course, these are the benefit for the user, but for the countries and the nations, people build credit histories, people uh, enter the financial system, people get digital identities, 
you know, people start being, uh, you know, a part of the system. Otherwise, they're undocumented. You know, drawing parallels with some other countries, it's like having the 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 Romas. I mean, I don't know if the Romas is a is an example, but you know, even in Greece or in some other countries, we don't know how many are the Romas. We don't know how many children they do. Right. So there are strategic reasons why the countries want also to involve people in the financial system and so on. But on top of that, also, if you ask me, the countries that uh, empower and influence these financial technology companies, these fintechs, how we call them, uh, you know, they have your political influence at the end of the day, right? Essentially, the biggest fintech in China, in uh, Nigeria is called Opay, which, is, which is, has been grown the last three years and it's owned from Chinese uh, companies. And essentially, you know, we cannot even trace down um, who is owning them, unfortunately. Right. Uh, so what I'm trying to say here is there is a lot of capital going in all of these fintechs. There's competition. Fintech, if you do some Google search, you would see it is the startup sector that received the most funding the last two or three years, even on the crisis. And even especially in the lockdown, eh? People were to accelerate their digital onboarding and digital registration with fintechs. So in general, I told you the benefit for the citizens. I told you the benefit for the countries. And I tried to explain to you also why it's important in geopolitical terms. Imagine, imagine, uh, you know, the countries that have the data, they have a network of digital banks in uh, West Africa, right? They have some influence. They, they make money and they keep growing. So it is a clear geopolitical play. And if you ask me, historically, this play has been on construction uh, sector, infrastructure, you know, companies would compete to, to do infrastructure projects. The last 20 years, 15 years, this has moved to telcos, telecommunication, because again, telecommunication, you know, you have another type of power and influence, and then the banking and the financial sector. So this... I, I, you know, there is a level of details I can tell. Uh, I saw so many things happening in uh, Nigeria. You see suddenly companies coming out of nowhere, getting very big market share. You see other other companies which follow more, um, you know, traditional Western business practices. They grow gradually um, and more sustainable. And then you have some surprises. So it's a very interesting play. And uh, I have seen so many uh, so much competition coming from multiple areas like East Africa, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, you know a lot of Indian money flowing, a lot of uh, Chinese money flowing, a lot of Western money flowing. Is West Africa? It's mainly a Western and Chinese, not much Indian money. Uh, Central Africa. It's also some like from other countries. So if you if someone would analyze the FDIs, the foreign direct investments of different regions, they will be able to understand, um, you know, where some countries are focusing to obtain influence. Right. So, yeah. The, the, the question that, that, that keeps coming up in my mind, uh, you mentioned certain countries that, uh, you know, politically, I mean, they're not perceived as free or open. Uh, and, and I'm just curious to know if from your end, if there were any challenges or if it was tricky a little bit to get into these markets that are otherwise either highly regulated by government or uh, completely government controlled. And you're coming in here and you're opening the door to potential foreign private investors coming in and controlling currencies and money and exchanges. Uh, was it tricky at all in the, in those countries? It is the most tricky thing. Um, and 
Okay, should I use? Can I use an example? A country as an example? For sure. Yeah. Okay. So Ethiopia, Ethiopia um, has uh, is one of the few countries that apparently still has communist government or had communist government until a few years ago. This meant that the way they were operating was still communist style, very bureaucratic, very slow, no competition, nothing is private, and so on. So with my job here in the IFC. Ethiopia is a count is a top is a top priority. They have opened lately the last five to ten years. And you will see there are two ways it's moving. On the one hand, some government, some people, because of the communist system, they feel closer to, to, to China, let's say. Okay. And then some other people have a different mindset. You know, they want to focus on private sector development. And, you know, to attract World Bank and the IFC uh, for World Bank for the government level, IFC for the private level, and then, of course, private companies. If you if someone would do a Google search, he would see that they had last year uh, some telco, tel- telecommunication licenses. What was happening is Vodafone from the UK, along with some other uh, companies, was trying to bring one consortium. Then on the other side was a Chinese company. Uh, or a few Chinese companies. Uh, the same happening in the banking sector, like they're trying to give some new banking licenses in the same competition. So Ethiopia, that is a big market, it's around 100 million, I'm not exactly sure about the people, um, uh, is, has been trying to open the last two or three or four years. And if you ask me, because I've been following that, even the Tigray crisis that happened two years ago where they had almost a civil war, you remember, the president of Ethiopia took Nobel Prize in 2020, and after that, they had a civil war. So even that is connected to this overall geopolitical play, okay? Like, imagine that when the government of Ethiopia was being very close to the, to the you know, to the, to the U.S., to the, the West side, let's say, suddenly some people in the, in the border of the country started revolting. You know, this, for those who know, it was a geopolitical uh, money coming in to support that. So ultimately, back to your question, how you know it everything connects together and why this is important. I just told you that a counter is trying to reform, while trying to reform is trying to privatize some sectors and you know uh, follow a specific path for development. And at the same time, there is um, there is competition from some people, some players in the account, in the market, to go on the other way. And that can lead to big conflict. Uh, and specifically for digital banking, if you ask me, they have issued uh, three or four digital banking licenses and people are bidding to get these digital banking licenses. Um, and, you know, it's the same play, like some money coming from some people from, you know, from different areas and different influence, not to be more specific. And similarly, the same is happening with other regulations, regulation for data ownership, regulation for open banking and other digital finance concepts. We have exactly the same situation. There's a very strict competition to put it simply of who will take the projects, who will win the projects. Yeah. I mean, you're coming, you're coming into the into play here from a very credible source, uh, from a very credible uh, source, right? I mean, the World Bank, you're a branch of the World Bank uh, and you're mentioning different um, uh, different parties kind of struggling to to have a piece of the pie. How can uh, 
collaboration between governments and regulatory bodies or financial institutions and other technology companies how can that collaboration foster a development of digital finance and you know drive financial inclusion on a global scale uh is that part of what your purpose is uh i'm imagining and correct me if i'm wrong that your goal here is to obviously first and foremost educate you know the the these societies and, and and these pockets in the world that probably have um very little knowledge of what's happening but at the same time uh, open up this field for this sort of collaboration and to avoid these sort of conflicts that you just mentioned you're very right so how um the targets that world bank is working on are directly related to the sustainable development goals so you know that United Nations they had this big convention and they've established around 20 or 22 sustainable development goals. A few of them is fight poverty and improve financial inclusion. Okay, so this is how the starting point for global collaboration. Now, following the United Nations targets, you know the other international development institutions plan accordingly. So essentially, if you ask me, uh, the United Nations targets are driving this global collaboration. But then as you, as you know, these global targets are being translated in national level, um, you know, different sides focus on different ways. I'm lucky enough, as you're not lucky or skilled or experienced enough, to be part of the biggest organization on that and the most historical one, the World Bank and the IFC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and essentially, you know, we are collaborating with all institutions we're collaborating with global banks. Right now, we're doing projects for the refugees from Ukraine, how they can get, you know, a credit scoring and a financial empowerment uh, as they have moved out of Ukraine. The same with uh, refugees from Syria, the same with refugees from Venezuela. Uh, so for remittances, I just spoke now, there are also other elements as well. So if you ask me, it all comes, it all, it all comes down to following the sustainable development targets uh, with a spirit of collaboration. As we know, some countries not always collaborate and some other countries don't follow the international rules, right? We have seen invasions and things like that in the recent years, unfortunately. So the sustainable development goals are driving global collaboration. The majority of the countries are collaborating to that through conventions, through common projects, through plans. But unfortunately, you know, not everyone always um, gets on board uh, and they prefer to have their own uh, approaches frequently. Uh, so that's how the whole system works. You know, we've had uh, a, a few guests on the podcast that were experts uh, on um, data privacy and uh, and cybersecurity. And I would imagine as this field continues to grow, where it becomes mobile, essentially, I mean, everything is, at, is in the palm of your hands. You, you know, you have to look at the flip side of the coin where there's always this bad intention that is equally evolving as well. Right. So how, how do we confront this? How do you deal with this? And, and again, it comes back to developing countries, uh, opening up, you know, the the, the this the door to, 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 to trusting these these systems and in, in this technology. In 2016, I was in a conference of the Economist in Nairobi, where there were multiple ministers and uh, deputy ministers of finance or of information security. And I remember the information security uh, 
the the ICT minister in information uh, ICT I'm not sure what it stands for uh, information and computer technology I think anyway the the and and I remember him opening and saying very clearly that the data of all our banks has been a victim of cyber attacks okay so again I don't want to be very specific uh, but there is in Africa specifically we all know that because you know the countries there are not technologically developed like US Canada Europe um, and they have also the same amount of money to invest in cybersecurity it is a common secret that all the data has been they has been hacked it can be found in the dark web and uh, and you know we could even point out specific countries that are doing that but you know i think that that goes beyond um, the scope of this podcast but this is spot on like it is a common secret over there that because of lack of technical knowledge because of lack of skills because of lack of financial resources they have not implemented the best cybersecurity practices they are they have not even developed national privacy data privacy regulations and all of that is a very big risk to all of these countries. So yes, the the challenges on this sector is on this aspect are very very big. We are well aware of that. That's why the World Bank has been moving a lot to develop digital identity policies and technologies, which essentially it's the highest, you know, uh, the best policy to secure um, secure data stored on the cloud based on national identities or national identity systems that connects also with bank accounts and so on. As as in the previous example of Ethiopia, some countries are coming on board. Nigeria is on board. They they are doing digital identity projects. Out of 200 million, 80 million people have digital identity and this number keeps growing. And in some other countries, they don't allow that yet because of the geopolitical uh, viewpoint I just told you earlier. Uh, can we talk a little bit about um, uh, cryptocurrencies? Um, obviously, this is something new. Uh, even in in developed countries, governments are not so sure what to do and how to handle it. Um, the, the, there are some governments that are thinking and in initiating their own um, uh, cyber currency. Uh, where are we on a global uh, stage when it comes to uh, cryptocurrency? And I mean, given the, the advent of blockchain, I mean, we're completely in the dark, right? I mean, governments have absolutely no way of regulating, of tracing. Uh, uh, so, 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 where are we with this new phenomenon? Spot on question. Um, it's a very unclear thing, as you say. Um, the IMF has the Central Bank Digital Currency Working Group, which tries to develop global policies, and I'm part of this group. Um, generally speaking, there are huge benefits in terms of transparency like as long as the database of the currency is owned from a legit person this being a central bank or being a, you know a big player in the financial system and this can help transparency can help faster transactions and things like that however what we have seen happening is that a lot of cryptocurrencies are developed from key for teams of young cool kids let's say okay which makes sense it's a new thing it's innovation you know it's geeky thing mm-hmm. um but this has brought a lot of risks as well so if you ask me it solves many problems if you would google you would see that from nigeria and ghana 
they are the biggest Bitcoin users uh, back then uh, until last year. This is because they can do instant transactions globally within like less than half an hour. Okay, so a Nigerian can be in Canada, the other one in uh, um, Nigeria, and he can do the transfer with zero cost in less than five minutes. So they have huge benefits because of their technology, but they need to be centrally coordinated and controlled. So if you ask me, uh, there are two types of cryptos. It is the decentralized digital currencies, which are not controlled from a central entity and thus are more risky, and the centralized digital currencies. We advocate, we promote, we work with multiple governments, the government of Israel, the government of um, maybe Euro, Eurozone is developing their own digital euro, uh, pound, digital pound, um, United Arab Emirates as well, Kenya, they have developed their own digital currency, Nigeria, and so on. So we are working with all these governments to advocate a centrally owned digital currency that will help transparency, faster transactions, lower costs, and things like that. So this is how we officially view it, and I'm very happy and excited to be part of this working group. Exactly. But I mean, there, there, there's so many unknown factors to that, right? And uh, the, will you be able... The, the the same way that you uh, that you know and you have a structure on implementing certain um, I don't want to call them regulations but uh, certain processes of establishing uh, you know uh, banking systems is it easy to do in 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 uh, in, the, in the crypto world? It is a way more complicated simply because it has a lot of technology. So you have bankers, people you know that have been doing thinking a lot financials over. Um, their whole lives trying to think technology. It's two different worlds. So it is indeed a very big challenge. One thing is the mindset of the bankers. Another thing is the existing infrastructure. Okay, so all the all the banking system is established on banks being the focal point for payments, for money transfers, right? So all these banks are feeling threatened from the usage of crypto, right? So uh, it is a very big challenge but still, I think the use cases, the solutions is offering, uh, and also a lot of failures in the banking system, right? Even now, like two months ago, two U.S. banks failed, uh, Silicon Valley Bank and right. one more, I'm not sure, First Republic Bank, maybe. Uh, so, and of course, we have the, the crisis of 2009, the trust of the people to the banks has been lost. So, uh, all of these factors, the ease of use, the easy reliability, and also the bank failures and a lot, you know, create the conditions for much easier promotion of these policies, uh, despite the infrastructure issues and the competition that the banks might try to, you know, the obstacles they might try to put. Uh, that's how I see this playing forward. Maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years, maybe 30 years. Do not forget the prime example here is the digitalization of the retail sector. When we were young kids, me and you, and uh, most of the people who are 40 years old these days, uh, they they you know they used to go to the stores, right? Some stores like uh, uh, you know in the UK the most famous example is Blockbuster. It was a very big uh, video game store and so on. Um, now you know all of that moved digitally to Amazon to to did to e-shops. So this took 20 25 years to happen. We expect exactly the same to happen in the banking sector gradually. You mentioned before political instability. Uh, the war, obviously, in Eastern Europe, uh, in African countries as well, uh, the, the 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 migration waves coming in from uh, from uh, from the Middle East into into Europe and essentially across the world, uh, across the Western world. Um, 
obviously there's a monetary impact there. There's a financial impact. Uh, and you uh, mentioned a few elements there where people were uh, forced to leave things behind. You don't know any of their uh, background, any credit, and they have to restart their whole life over. Is this something that is being looked at much more with the with with the current global reality? Because aside from just you know military and political context, there's also now a new reality, which is the environmental uh, migration. Uh, people are you know, you know they're not forced by war or anything like that. But and but these are all uh, issues that I think in the next maybe five to ten years we're going to be really really uh, forced to deal with. How is the banking system or the people behind these technologies uh, looking into these um, uh, these facts? Unfortunately, um, uh, climate refugees is is a big thing. Unfortunately, um, um, so um, if you ask me, uh, imagine the following situation, right? Um, you are now in Canada. One day something happens, you have to leave your country, you just take some dollars with you and there is nothing else that you have, right? Imagine imagine you, you have your house in the center of Kiev and one day uh, this very bad thing happens and uh, you know, the only thing you, you the only thing they tell you is that leave your country right now. You just take your basics. So there are so many things. You go to a new country. How can you rent a house? How can you how can you buy a mobile phone? How can you do anything, right? So uh, the challenges are so many that ask people that have not lived for a war. Uh, in a war, we cannot really understand or feel. So there are lots of policies we are developing from here. We are, you know, from transferring credit history from one country to another, which is a technological thing from trying to give small loans uh, based on you know current uh, data and current possessions someone might have uh, to to even you know like provide to even helping them find some jobs and start you know essentially also the companies in Poland for example that a lot of Ukrainians have been or in Europe that they have been already there you know they don't know if they are hiring an ex criminal let's say or an ex so they don't really trust them as well. So the issues are a lot. And as I told you, we are having special facilities in the World Bank, facility meaning special lending programs. Um, we have special training programs. We try to focus on job creation for immigrants. We try to promote specific policies with quotas to hire immigrants and try to subsidize this, these roles. We try to help transfer of data from one country to another. We try to, 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 to help to to build platforms for lending and fund them in the national governments. So there are multiple different policies we are trying to pursue in order to alleviate the huge pain that these people are having. Interesting. I know you're a busy man. Uh, I don't want to take up uh, too much of your time. Uh, just on a final note, when we look ahead, uh, you know, in the next couple of years, maybe even less than 10 years, what do you believe will be the most significant trend or advancement in this field, you know, of digital finance, financial inclusion, how can stakeholders prepare uh, and even adapt to these changes? Look, I think the biggest uh, trend, we're already seeing it, cash will go, will not exist anymore, right? Um, which means that, you know, I believe uh, US is not, you know, 
the most countries ahead on that game are the Scandinavian countries, like in Sweden, 95% of transactions is done digitally, only 5% is done with cash. Um, the southern we go to Europe, the more cash is being used, like in our home country, cash still is important. Uh, so I think cash will disappear totally. In, other, in Nigeria, in some countries, 98% is still cash, right? So this is the biggest change we'll see happening, like less and less usage of cash, which means you know, prepare accordingly to have digital infrastructures, to have digital transactions, to have digital capable people, to be financially literate and technologically literate. Uh, so that's implication number one for cash. Number two also, um, we will see, generally speaking, the banks going down and the fintechs and smaller startups uh, improving. This is because the banks, they have lost the trust of the people to a major extent. The banks are too expensive. They charge for... Uh, sorry for the word, for ridiculous things. They charge for bank transfers. Bank transfer, you just press a button and the transfer happens. It's not even a costing, you know. But they have fintechs offering that for free, like Revolut. Maybe you use Revolut, I don't know. Uh, you can just do transfers without any fee. Um, so you will see the banks uh, not being dominant anymore and having fintechs and alternative solutions uh, being more important. Another trend that we will see is we will see also a lot of embedded finance offering. So embedded finance is non-banking players entering the financial sector. What do I mean here? Amazon or Shopify or other uh, e-commerce companies, Jumia in Africa, they have a lot of credit history. They have a history of SM, uh, small shops selling the stuff. Mm. You know, this essentially they can start giving them loans slowly. Amazon. So you'll see, and this is happening. Amazon is giving loans. Jumia is giving loans in Africa. Uh, Mercado Libre, which is a dominant uh, e-commerce of Latin America, is has official lending program to the retailers. So you'll see also non-traditional banking players entering the financial field. Uh, to prepare for that, the banks need to offer better customer service. They need to be more digital to be ahead of their game. That's why you see in the US the regional banks. They start losing more and more market, and then we'll go to the major banks. Right. So I hope I gave you a clear picture. I would I would like to share more information, maybe in a future project. In a For future sure, project. absolutely. Um, Dr. Kostadinos Tsanis, thank you so much for being on the program. A lot of information. Obviously, it's a huge field. Uh, we'll be more than glad to have you back uh, and to continue this, uh, this conversation. Um, where can people find you, follow the work that you do? Uh, is there anywhere where we can send them? And we're going to link everything in the description. Absolutely. Uh, on LinkedIn, just type my name, Konstantinos Chanis. I'll send you also my LinkedIn link after. And, uh, you know, I'm very happy to uh, discuss any questions, find fintech collaborators, discuss ideas, concepts, and help change this world the better. Thank you so much. And on a final note, let me invite you all to go to www.strategyinternational.org for any information on Strategy International and all the beautiful work that is being done over there. Thank you all so much for tuning in, and we will see you all in the next episode. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Strategy International podcast. Produced by PodMTL for Strategy International. Feel free to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. This podcast is made for Strategy International Limited, Cyprus. All copyrights reserved. 
This podcast, audio or audiovisual, may not be reproduced, duplicated, copied, sold, resold, visited, or otherwise exploited for any commercial, scientific, educational purpose without the written consent of Strategy International Limited and its legal representative.